Hello everyone, Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary on Hannibal's Trail and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn, I'll be joining their Venetian tour travelling in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Come along and see for yourself why the Adriatic Sea is the most scenic coastline in the world. Along the way, I'll be sharing stories from my life of travel, adventure and research, as well as exploring the history all around us. It'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history, but to change the way that you think about the past. Now, if you want to find out more, just head over to bikeodyssey.cc. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like potatoes, laughter and legs. Or grey, hay and good day. That's for our Australian uh, listeners. I'd like to do the history of meetings. The history of meetings. Yeah. Meetings and greetings. Or pink stink and the blink. Do the blink, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I like that. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of the Reformation is in fact all about bells, fire, bones, windows, alcohol free beer. <laughs> Remember, you didn't get that one? And roller coasters. Yep. Uh, if you're interested in that, go back and listen to our unexpected history of the Reformation. Uh, the man sitting opposite me, it, let's just say that if the past was a tart tata, he would be the pastry. Excellent. Oh. Which I think is a compliment. In a sense. The uh, structure. The structure. The foundation. Yeah. Yes, yes the, 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 the past couldn't happen without me. No, and, exactly. And there is great skill in... There's great skill in engineering. Yes, uh, that pastry Good, I'm, and making I'm it. It is, it is a compliment. Um, uh, get in not, touch if you think that is not a compliment. Not, it's not hard or soggy bottomed or anything no, 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 like no, no, that. No, no, no. Anything like that. So if the past was a tart tat and the man sitting opposite me would be the well-made, crispy, tasty, firm pastry. It is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man sitting opposite me is the patriarch of the past. It's the truly wonderful historical adventurer, famed as he is, Dr. Sam Willis. It's a sort of undeserving male authority. Yes. Is what you mean there. Yes. Uh, you could be the matriarch of the past. I'd like, I prefer that as well. I would, yes, yes. We talked about matriarchs in our motherhood podcast. We, we did, yes. Um, Mothers may come up today as well. I a hope little. so. Yes. So what are we talking about today, Sam? Nazis. The history of Nazi Germany and the Third Reich. Now, we're doing this because we have just written a little book on the unexpected history of World War II. And we did a podcast uh, a little while back on World War II, but we thought that what we hadn't talked about was this from the perspective of the Nazis. And people seem to be obsessed with the history of Germany during the, the 30s and, and the first half of the, of the 1940s. You know what? We were talking the other week about why people are interested in the Tudors when we did our yes. podcast on the Tudors. And I think the reason that people are interested in the Nazis is actually very similar to why they're re- interested in the Tudors. Yes. And it comes back to this 
tyranny. It was tyranny. Maybe it's the it's bewilderment at what happened and the desperate need to understand it. So you yes. can only if if you say to someone this this happened in the past at this stage, then if it doesn't make sense to our modern minds, then you instinctively kind of embrace the historian within you, and you have to say, well, why did it happen? Yeah. And I think um, I, th- I think they actually go hand in hand in that respect. I think it's also the same reason that people are interested in sharks. If you look at the look at TV shows and the most popular TV shows, uh, Nazis and sharks are way up there. Um, and and I think I think there is there is an obsession, not only with the Second World War but also with the atrocities, yeah, of the Second World War and the the figure of Hitler as well is yeah. an extraordinary an extraordinary figure. Well, I mean, what um, we we tried to do with our book was to to slightly not fall into the trap of the narratives that are so yeah. prevalent. Yeah. I think one of, one of the things, though, when you're looking at a historical subject like that, and this is a period that has, you know, that is deeply disturbing, deeply upsetting, I think is, you know, is is very difficult to to deal with. But the role of the historian is to be able not to pass judgment on it, but to understand it. And I think you know there are big questions that you seek to that you seek to understand. How is it that a country that is so liberal nowadays allowed a figure like Hitler to rise to power? What were the circumstances that that were behind that? How could an entire nation um, get behind that and witness and be involved in the kinds of atrocities that that took place? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and thinking about thinking about the Nazi Reich, the Third Reich as a system, how did it operate? You know, you've got you've got a figure Hitler right at the centre. Um, fascinating uh, sort of psychological study there, but then also thinking about how the the political structure worked. Um, I mean, it's actually the the parallels with with Henry VIII are you know, are quite striking. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hitler, in a in a sense, yes, he is sort of, he's interested in policy, but he says, I want something done. And then people clamour around trying to sort of work out what he wants and supply him with the solution that he wants. I mean, you can see this, you know, notably in the Holocaust. You know, you want the, the extermination of the Jews, and there are a whole range of, of sort of, phases in how this actually yeah. comes to being until you get the the final solution. So I mean it's uh I mean it's 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 a it's a really difficult thing to difficult thing to study. And interestingly when I was just looking back over it yesterday in preparation for our podcast today I I came up against exactly what you're talking about there about how Hitler managed to motivate so many people. And um I suppose I'm fortunate in some respect because I've I've made a six-part TV series about the Nazis as well as having written our book yes. and also in our main histories of the unexpected, but we, we deal a lot with World War II. Yes. And one of the things I really remember of making the series was going to Heidelberg, right. lovely place, yes. where they have a Tingstatter. And the Ting movement was a movement in the um, mid-1930s. And what they were trying to do, so this is the 
thing which we know about in our from our Vikings, our Vikings book, our Viking podcast. So it's about local government. Yes, they gathered everyone together in the things. And they start, the Nazis started building them again in the, in the mid-30s. And there's this amazing one at Heidelberg, and it's like a uh, outdoor... It's like a Roman amphitheatre, mm. um, but clearly built in the 1930s. There's a stage, it's surrounded by layers and layers and layers and layers of seats. Um, it's, in, it's in a beautiful kind of foresty setting. Right. So it's not right in the middle of town. So it's sort of pastoral yes, forest. Um, yeah. And it's all, you know, that, that was all to do with, with the Nazi interest in layers of history in the past yes. and wanting to recreate things that had gone before yes. in their Germanic past, which I always think is fascinating itself. And you can't understand the Nazis without understanding not only what actually happened in the past, but what the Nazis thought or mm. wanted people to believe happened in the past. Mm. So their understanding of history is different to our understanding of history. Um, and anyway, it, it ended up with the thing stutters. And it made me think hugely about um, the power of the voice yes, and how yes. hugely important that was to the rise of Nazism. And you actually can't um, explain it unless you think about that. Hitler very famously believed that oral speech and power was more important than the written word. Yes. What do you think about that as a historian? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of work done on Hitler's speeches. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the most powerful orators, I mean, would pack a stadium and he would, he would turn up on purpose late mm. so that the audience would be in this sort of frenzy. There's a wonderful description in Stephen Fry's, one of his autobiographies, where he tells this anecdote from Alistair Cook, you know, the letter from America yeah. guy, uh, Radio 4, um, he invited Alistair Cook to um, to Cambridge uh, when he was an undergraduate. And Alistair Cook told this story about travelling as a young man in uh, Germany and witnessing um, a an impromptu a speech by Hitler in a beer keller. And people were gathering fairly early on. There were um, the equivalent of sort of Red Cross. So there were there were. Sort of ambulance services there because basically people swooned, and Hitler would get people up into such a frenzy that they would pass out. And as um, as he's sort of exiting, Alistair Cook is exiting uh, the beer keller to leave. Somebody bar somebody brushes shoulders with him, and the guy um, says, "Entschuldigung, mein Herr." So you know, apologies, my my sir. Um, and the person is actually Hitler, mm. who's apologised for sort of bumping shoulders. But yeah, the power of speech. Yeah, is well, he was described incredible. as. I just looked into this a bit. Um, so people at the time described him as spellbinding, mesmeric, and hypnotic. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering to what extent. Well, I, I don't know the answer to this. I'd be really interested to know whether it's a branch of history that anyone's looked at. Whether to, to what extent that is to do with the kind of the rhetorical power of the German language, or it's act. Or, and or it's to do with Hitler himself and the way that he used that language. It's a very complex thing, I think, which if you unpick it, would be really interesting. So the relative powers of different languages yeah. in whipping people into a frenzy. And he had to practice it. This is the other interesting yes. thing. So there, there are the, he had a personal photographer, um, Heinrich Hoffmann, who took... Two million photographs of Hitler 
practising his speeches in a mirror. So some of the most extraordinary images of Hitler are taken by, by his photographer as he's practising his speeches. So I, I, I always come back to this idea of practising. We talked about it as well in, in podcasts and writing. I love the idea of practising and people training themselves to yeah. do something again and again and again and again and again. It, it, it really makes the point that history doesn't just happen. Often it happens because people have rehearsed again and again and again, Fred. And I think that's quite sinister in this respect. Um, but also it does help you understand why he was so good at it. It's very rare that people become exceptionally good at something just off yeah. the cuff, yeah, yeah. even if you've got the natural skill. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, have a look at these pictures of Hitler rehearsing in a mirror. They're really weird. I mean, also then listen to some of the rallies, listen to the speeches, and even if you don't understand German, you know, if you just listen to it from a sort of an oratorical point of view, it is... You know, it actually reminds me, you know, there are parallels with Martin Luther King, you know, and that and if you think about the tricks of the of the orator, the repeated phrases, the stress on particular parts of the of the sentence or even Churchill. I think Churchill was another great orator. I also wonder whether the if we think about that as a particular period, you know, this is the period where you have the radio It's so important and the voice is so important in a way that nowadays the voice isn't quite so important because it's more about it's more about the image. Yeah. It's more, and, and nowadays it's much more about social media. But you have people harnessing the radio like that. But with but with Hitler, it's you know it is in stadia. It's it with it's within stadia, and he's you know he's talking to to a crowd. What else were you interested in, James? The other thing that I'm really interested in is the Third Reich from the perspective of oral history. Okay. You know, because we have so many people surviving and the wonderful oral histories that have come out in the past couple of decades. A colleague of mine, Eric Johnson, uh, who I taught with for many years. Hello, Eric, if you, if you ever listen to this, um, who worked with a sociologist. And what he was interested in was these questions of what people knew. And he did two big books. One, What People Knew. The other one was about the, the Nazi terror. Um, and the kinds of questions that, he's, that he was interested in is the questions that we started with. You know, why did so many millions of people, you know, why, why did Hitler's party appeal to them? You know, how entrenched was anti-Semitism? Um, to what extent did people know what was going on? And here it's about because often the narrative is that people did it because they were terrified. And what he what's striking about his book is the degree to which people were involved in this. Yeah. Knew exactly what was going on. And this was something that for a long time in German history writing, the Nazi period was just completely overlooked until Fritz Fischer uh, wrote his book um, called The Fritz, Fritz Fischer Controversy that it, it sort of it led to, where suddenly historians had to start explaining this aberration in their past. Um, and it's quite extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Um, but go on. I've got a thing about oral history as well. Yes. And that's the particular power of it. So one of the programmes I made was on... Um, we were trying to understand what was going on at Wevelsberg Castle, which is Himmler's private castle. It's a very curious yes. castle built as a triangle up in the woods. And um, 
they tr- when the Americans broke through at the end of the war, Himmler sent someone personally to go and destroy it. Um, so he was worried about what was going on there. Um, they didn't succeed in destroying all of it. And w- once it was discovered what was going on there, they found some evidence of some ritual activity, some weird patterns. And we did a, a little documentary about that. Now, one of the most fascinating things about it was that there was an interview with a guy called Dr. Frank who was in charge of some historical research there. So Himmler had gathered around him a lot of historians and archaeologists and he was looking into Germanic historical and archaeological pasts, seeking to create a kind of thesis which explained how the Aragons came to be and why they were better than everyone else. The interview was with this guy called Dr. Frank who basically admitted that they all laughed at Himmler behind his back and Himmler's spiritual advisor, a guy called Karl Willigut. And if you read a lot of the main sources, these guys are presented as being people of fairly significant authority and status and power. But the rug was completely torn away once you spoke to this person who had the freedom to chat about it, not necessarily write it down. And he said, well, actually, as a bit of an aside, you know, every time we went to lunch, we all had a bit of a laugh about it. No one took this seriously. And he also admitted that when they were developing the future plans. So Himmler wanted to turn Wevelberg's castle into the centre of a sort of SS university, like an Oxbridge for the SS, where everyone would learn about the Germanic past. Um, And this guy, Dr. Frank, admitted that they were taking as long as possible and to make the plan as big as possible so they wouldn't get sent to the front. They were all historians and archaeologists essentially making busy work. They were were doing things they could to, to just keep the time passing so they didn't have to go and die. And essentially, they were creating busy work for themselves. They were making more work for themselves so they could stay in the relative peace and security of Wevelsburg Castle. And I love the, 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 the intense power of that oral testimony to radically change the way that the entire thing was presented. And if you get inside it, you can suddenly... It, it's just much, a much more human story. There isn't a great mystery about what was going on there. It was a, a couple of guys with big ideas and no one else took them seriously. But because of their authority, they had to. I think the other area of oral history is about survivors of the Holocaust. And I'm, we've talked about this in the past, but there are... I mean, if if you, you access um, these oral histories, you will you will find all sorts of details about, you know, precisely what went on in the concentration camps and, you know, the horrors. And I think there is a, there is a real importance in these stories of survivors being heard and being studied. We, we haven't really done the kind of standard uh, history of Nazi Germany in our, in our book, um, it sort of it, it, it comes in in, in different ways. Uh, this is the book on the unexpected history of World War Two, and I suppose we treat the Nazis in they come up in in various chapters that we've looked at, uh, in particular on chapters on cows, on cars, on mothers, on suicide, uh, courage. In the big book, we talk about courage. Yeah, um, Mozart. Yep. Uh, cancer. Yep. So all of these sort of all of these sort of areas are um, hair. They came up in the history. They of came hair. up in the history of hair. Yes, as well. And the same basis that you have um, historians have been 
well, I mean, because hair roughly grows at a certain amount, yes. a certain certain speed, 15 centimetres per year, it becomes a, an important resource for the scientist. Yes. Um, because hair itself has a history. It changes over time, but those changes are permanent and they, yes. they remain visible. Yes. I thought that was interesting. I thought that was very good. Um, and I think there there is a thing about... Um, what what strikes me about conversations that I had with colleagues who've written on the Nazis is the way in which people have responded to them. In particular, a colleague in the US that I was very friendly with uh, said that the letters he got were either from people in prison saying how much they enjoyed his work on the Third Reich. Hmm. Um, he also had, I mean, quite... Uh, tragically, his house was smeared in excrement because he was working on the Holocaust. Right. Um, so it, it's a you know Nazi Germany is is a you know a, a, a sort of very delicate topic uh, to study. Um, what struck me over the years, though, and I, I remember hearing. Um, well, I I studied Nazi Germany as an A level student doing A level history. And this was back in the 1980s. God, I'm ancient. Um, so I studied it for a, a whole year for a big uh, documents paper and essay paper. Um, what struck me about 15 years later when I heard Richard Evans talk about Hitler um, and Nazi Germany at a Stenton lecture at um, Reading University was that so little had actually changed in terms of what we knew. The basic framework of Nazi Germany had, had, you know, seemed to have very little changed. I mean, maybe it's as an outsider sort of coming into a period, but I just, you know, I just wonder what, what has happened over the last 10 years. What do we, what do we now know that we didn't beforehand? Certainly the, all the research that I was doing for this book, you know, very little um, in the landscape, seem to have seem to have changed. But we should start talking about some of the chapters. Do you want to start? Um, yes. Or do you have more to say about uh, Nazi historiography? Uh, no, <laughs> no. Um, I I was very inspired by a book by um, Robert Proctor on the Na- called the Nazi War on Cancer. Yeah. And the links between national socialism and the way they were running their country, and also yep. the challenges of of um, the medical challenges that that cancer posed, it's all sort of linked with their desire to have an if a large, efficient, and effective workforce. And at the same time, they have national health insurance yeah. as well. So if people fall sick, then that creates a burden on the state. On the state, yeah. and so at the time, they diverted huge amounts of resources into solving the problem of cancer. Um, more than a thousand doctoral theses were produced in the 12 years of Nazi rule. And that's, that's extraordinary, oh, specifically cancer. about cancer. Yeah. Right. Um, so which is, which is evidence of the funding and effort going into that kind of research. Yeah. So Nazi researchers, they were the first to discover the link between smoking and lung cancer, between sunlight and skin cancer, between x-rays and cancer, between uranium and cancer, between food dyes and cancer. Um, For example, they found out, here we are, uh, linking bladder cancer with dye workers, skin, bone and blood cancers with x-rays, lung cancer caused by uranium mining. So you've got a lot of 
different types of cancers here, which are to do with the work environment um, and also to do with lifestyle and just generally kind of looking after yourselves as well. They had a massive war against smoking. Yeah. Some have argued it didn't actually work. So you have all of these posters of saying, yes. please don't smoke, please don't smoke. Hitler hated smoking. That was well known. He didn't drink. Yeah. Um, trying to work out whether people actually stopped smoking is a different thing. But what's certainly true is that they had this um, interest and huge amounts of money to tackle cancer. And, I mean, what, what's striking about that is the way in which... The in a totalitarian state like that, all resources are directed towards the good of the state. Yeah, um, and that's one of the things that struck me about looking at World War at World War Two in this sort of situation of total war. All the countries that are involved, just everything gets turned over to war production, and so the battle against cancer is part of that sort of having a, a healthy fighting nation. Um, Along those lines is the history of mothers, the history of motherhood uh, in Nazi Germany. We talked a little bit about this in the Mother's Mother's Day Day special, um, where we talked about the Nazi cross of honour for for mothers. And this is basically where what you want, what the Nazis wanted was a healthy and, and enormous population. And so they targeted mothers not only to give birth to lots of children, uh, and if they did so, they would be awarded medals uh, as as part of honour, but also they targeted the mother as a really important figure in bringing up and educating, effectively in indoctrinating the um, the the young young sort of would be would be Nazis. Um, there's an extraordinary um, body of material. Uh, that survives in local archives of letters from mothers who had multiple children but yet didn't receive the medals and are writing complaining and in the chapter that we in the chapter in the book uh, mothers is about shame yeah. mothers is all about shame and there's one letter addressed to Gauleiter Karl Haufmann to a top Nazi official in Hamburg in May 1941 by a mother uh, which reads dear gauleiter hoffman kaufman which reads dear gauleiter kaufman have i been forgotten i have had eight children and am now pregnant again i have not received my golden cross my mother-in-law says this is a great shame and my husband was violent towards me today because of this please help so there's this sense in which in which these mothers feel that they haven't done their duty, that there is something wrong with them because of this. Another mother... The violence in that's interesting. Yes. Why is he... Domestic, been... domestic violence. Domestic violence, which she's attributing... To him, because... To, to, to him, to not having received the medal. Yes. Because she's failed... I mean, I imagine in that case... I mean, obviously one doesn't know the intimate circumstances from a letter like that. No, no, but it's just but interesting I, that she's, blamed, she's, yes. she's, twi- she's turning it back on the people who are doing the medals. Yes, yes. And the husband is punishing her because, you know, he so, doesn't so, see her as an ideal mother. Mm. There's another mother who had 11 children who wrote complaining of not receiving a cross, and she felt so strongly about this, saying, we're really not criminals Hereditary disease, prison, jail, alcohol abuse, these things do not exist in our family. I feel unworthy because I have not got the cross. So it's, it's 
what's impressive about the power of the Nazi state is the way in which the propaganda is indoctrinating women to the extent that they are internalizing these values. I mean, it really is a sort of a terrifyingly stifling form of patriarchy that, that makes these women think in that, in that way, that sort of, in a sense, traps them, denies them a degree of agency. You know, the, more, the more you read into it and the, the way that the society worked, the, the more a lot of it makes sense. So, so the cancer thing, yep. that makes sense as well, because you've got... You think about what was going on in the 1930s beforehand. There are all of these amazing German chemists and physiologists. Um, four Nobel Prize prize winners were Nazis before the war. Um, they discovered one of the first commercially available antibiotics and made significant advances in our understanding of neurotransmitters. And then you think about, well, actually, how do you deal with cancer? And the answer is you need mass record-keeping, mass scraping, and mass diagnosis which the Nazi state was uniquely, far more so than yep. anyone else at the time, was uniquely teed up to being able to provide. Um, and a certain extent, that actually applies to mothers as well, because they need to be keeping records, they need to be knowing exactly yes, what's absolutely. going on, and it fits absolutely. into within the established um, history they've got going of handing out medals one way or another. Yes, and the history of record-keeping as well. Yeah, I mean, the Nazi Germany is a... Is a um, a historian's dream in terms of records that survive. You know, so many, you know, so much material survives from this uh, to study. The other thing that we looked at was suicide uh, in a chapter. Um, you know, I mean, not only Hitler's own suicide, and we know quite a lot of detail about precisely how that happened, you know, in take he and his wife, Eva Braun, taking... Uh, cyanide tablets their bodies were then discovered and taken outside into the garden and set on fire they doused in petrol so that they, there was no sort of sense that their bodies were going to get you know picked up and, and kept as relics or anything like that but then we have a whole series of mass Nazi suicides in response to what looks like the encroaching power of the Soviets coming in moving into Berlin um, and into into the country, it looks like people are going to be, the country is going to be overthrown and people fear what's going to happen. And this, again, is partly explained by the power of Nazi propaganda, you know, and the way in which the Bolsheviks, the Bolshevik murder pack, there's a Nazi leaflet dating from February 1945 which warned Germans of a Bolshevik murder pack that in the event of an Allied victory would unleash incredible hatred, looting, hunger, shots in the back of the neck, deportation and extermination. And you have a whole series of you know, mass suicides, people taking their own life uh, because of this. And that is a, just a chapter in the broader and very interesting question of suicide yes. during the war all over the place. Which is all about loyalty. And honour. Yeah. And so, it's also about depression and shock. I mean, it's about depression and shock. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And shame as well. So, I mean, the, 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 there's a lot of work being done on suicide rates in, in the UK. Yes. And trying to work out whether 
people who'd been to the front were more likely to commit suicide, what age groups started committing suicide, whether women started committing suicide more than men, whether that was in result to men dying yeah. um, or sons dying, whatever it might be. And then you've got this question of suicide and loyalty in Japan um, and civilians. Suicide and honour. Suicide yeah. and honour and civilians yep. committing suicide as well. Yes, yes. And that has just scratched the surface of the unexpected history of the Nazis. Yes. Um, we should do another one in, in the future. Another one, yeah. We should do one on Hitler himself. Yes. We'll do that. No, I think um, nearer the time... Nearer, nearer, we'll do that towards the end of the summer. Yes. That would be good. Excellent. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And do please get in touch if you've got different ways we can think about the Nazis. We'd love to hear what they are. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow... Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. If you want to find out more about what we're doing, please get on to historiesoftheunexpected.com. And now we've got one extra little message for you because we've set up a Patreon account. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. Um, James and I are really trying very hard to do something new and really different here, and we can only do it with your help. So if you go on to patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected you can pledge just a couple of dollars a month and it would make all the difference we're trying to get into schools we're trying to get into community groups we can improve our technology we can um, pay for the cost of editing we can basically get more and more material out and spread the word and we can't do it without your help so please check out patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected anything you can give will be gratefully received and it will help keep the mics switched on and well-oiled, <laughs> won't it? Absolutely. If you want well-oiled mics, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we should do that. Send what? us a can of WD-40. Um, Actually, that's probably no good for mics at all. Yeah. Uh, thank you all so much for your support and your interest for downloading these podcasts. We love you all. We think you're great. Bye-bye. You are brilliant. Thank you. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.